Um, as I said, we're moving into a new section. Uh, the, the, the book is really introduced in chapter 1 through chapter 3, verse 6. And then what happens in the rest of chapter 3, all the way through the end of chapter 16, is the unfolding of these judges' stories. Um, but they have a real purpose for how they are organized. And so since we're moving into the sequence of the Judges, I want to introduce you to that in just a little bit. Uh, Barry Webb says this, Judges 3, 7 through 16, 13, so beginning with Othniel and going through Samson, um, that section is not simply an anthology of judge stories and summary notices, but it's a long, complex narrative. It has an episodic structure with an underlying linear ground plan. The whole thing has been set up very, very carefully for you to see the development and really the decline both of the morality in Israel and the decline of the character of the judges. The, the judges just keep getting worse and worse and worse. And, and how that all unfolds is really beautiful. Uh, Bruce Waltke, um, great Old Testament scholar, says this. Uh, he says, the first step to understanding what the Bible says is understanding how the Bible says it. Um, and so I want to give you a little bit of how the Bible is going to develop these um, 12 judges stories, of which six of them will be highlighted. Um, and Gideon is going to be real, really the turning point in it. And so uh, to, to kind of give you an, an understanding of how this is going to work, we've seen this before, but there's this cycle that, that we work through. Um, with the judges, there is a sin. The, the, the people of Israel, God's people are sinning. They're in idolatry. They're forgetting the Lord. They're worshiping other gods. And God, as a discipline, sends oppression. And that oppression comes from a number of different sources. We're going to see one guy today. Um, he's a particular person today. Sometimes it's a whole group of people. They pray and cry out to the Lord. Not repentant, but crying out. Because of God's graciousness, he sends a deliverer, one of these judges who I talked about last week. They're more like warlords. They gather a, an army. Um, they kind of swoop into this area of town, uh, this area of the country, and they, they push out the oppressors. Um, and, and then they, after they have done that, because of their uh, respect in gathering the army and chasing people out. The, the, the land has a period of rest and peace where this judge kind of sits and he's the, the governor of that particular area. And then unfortunately it just repeats again. But the cycle gets worse and worse every time. Um, here's what Dan Block says. Um, in short, with the exception of the first, that's our section today with Othniel, with the exception of the first, in each cycle the author will select some aspect of the paradigm uh, that cycle that I just said, he's going to select one aspect of it for fuller elaboration. Either the nature of the oppression is going to be expanded, the manner in which the deliverer is raised up, the way in which the deliverer, deliverance is achieved, the ruler's subsequent adequate, adequate activity, the legacy of the ruler. In this way, the narrator enhances the literary quality of the overall work by giving depth and texture to the plot and also heightens readers' interest with numerous surprising turns. The, a lot of the surprise in, in Judges is we're working through these 12 Judges, and as we work through them, every now and then you go, what? <laughs> he did what with what? God chose who? The people of Israel are doing what? There's all these surprising, shocking turns um, that are designed to get your attention and to keep you reading through the book. Now, how the book is structured is, is actually fairly interesting. 
like I said, there are six major judges, and we're going to spend time on these guys. Today, Othniel. Next week, Ehud. Um, how, how many left-handed people are in the room today? If you're left-handed, okay? You might not want to come next week, okay? Just planting a seed. Um, then we're going to talk about Barak and Deborah, Gideon. We'll have a message on Abimelech, even though he's not a judge. Uh, Abimelech is the son of Gideon who sets himself up as a king. He's, a, he's, he's the worst guy in the book, except for Jephthah and Samson, who, who, are, who are pretty bad too. Now, interspersed with those guys are these other people that you probably have never even heard of. Some of you may not have even heard of Othniel or Ehud, but we've got Shamgar, Tola, Jair, Isben, Ilan, and Abdon. Um, how the book works is, is this. There are six major judges that are going to get expanded stories. There are six minor judges that just kind of get referenced. They just get thrown in there, and these guys are all over the place. Anyone have any thoughts on why there's six and six? It's very clear. (laughs) Because the 12 represent the problem has spread through the entire country. This is not just one tribe. Um, This is all over. And and these guys don't come from each one of the tribes. But the representative number 12, and it's very clear, and it's part of what Kenneth Way does in that function of the minor judges article that's out there, is he talks about why they, they craft it so that there's 12, but really it's to show the full coverage that um, this idolatry, this problem of people drifting away from the Lord, um, it, it is for the entire nation of Israel. In fact, when you look at the flow of the judges and where they are, I know it's difficult to see, um, but basically we're going to start with Othniel, who's the farthest south. And slowly we're going to move north until we get to um, the final, the really paradigmatic judge there who's, who's, who really turns for the most wickedness in, in Gideon. Um, we're going to see that turn, but it, it moves slowly north through the country until you get to Samson, who's actually from the south, but the Danites eventually move to the north. So you, you move through this book from south to north. It's, it's 12 that covers the whole country, and we go from the south to the north, giving you judge after judge after judge. In fact, those articles out there will really show you how that develops. So let me jump into Othniel, who's the first one. It's a short section. It's a short section, and he's kind of the paradigm of the judges. Let me just read the section for you. It's, it's very short, just verses 7 through 11. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord, their God, and served the Baals and the Astaroths. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathiam, king of Aram Nerahiam, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rishathiam, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him, so that the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. Um, this is a very generic passage. Um, and it, what it does is it introduces us to the first judge who I'm calling a, a paradigm. He's, he's kind of the model judge. He's the ideal judge. 
we don't know much about him. We've met him back in chapter 1. He's Caleb's uh, nephew, son-in-law. Um, he's got a good marriage. And, and he's, in, in so many ways, he's kind of the antithesis of all of the other judges who, who come. Um, he's, there's really a short section, but nothing bad is said about him. He's set up, and a lot of the things that happen with this guy are, are kind of a setup to show the contrast of the other judges who don't measure up. Abraham Curvilla says this, Othniel, as far as we are told, has no flaws, no character deficiencies, and no idiosyncrasies that cripple him, unlike the judges who follow. In the other judge accounts, there's always mention of a personal detail of the judge in question that appears to render that individual an unlikely choice for a leader. Ehud's left-handedness. By the way, don't come next week if you're offended by that. Barak's timidity, Gideon's indecision, Jephthah's pedigree, and Samson's promiscuity. Again, each one of them gets worse and worse. He goes on to say, but not for Othniel. He apparently is blemishless. Unless one counts his Kenizzite status, uh, he is a foreign blood, but becomes firmly entrenched in the tribe of Judah. He's not um, an Israelite by birth, but he has been adopted, like Caleb, he's been adopted and has become a a Yahweh follower in his life. Greg Wong says this, Othniel is the only major judge presented without any discernible character flaw. It is likely that the author has intentionally set him as an ideal paradigmatic model against which subsequent judges are to be compared. He's the ideal. By the way, we're going to see in just a moment, the oppressor is kind of presented the same way. He's presented as this ideal kind of paradigm of what the oppression looks like. Um, Another way I can say this, um, how many of you know what a Mad Lib is? Know what a Mad Lib is? Did, did this with your kids? Um, Othniel, this Othniel passage is kind of a Mad Lib. Um, wh- when we get into the judges, they all kind of have this same formula. And here's the formula. Israel sinned by, fill in the blank. The Lord judged them by subjecting them to the foreign power for a particular number of years. Israel cried out to the Lord and sent a judge, fill in the blank, to deliver them. After that, the land rested for this many years. Othniel is the one that perfectly fills, fills this in. Now, like uh, Barry Webb said, all the other ones are going to highlight a certain aspect of this and expand it so that the other judges' stories are going to get much longer. Even the very next one next week is going to get longer. And so what we have in this one, this first Mad Lib here, is Israel sinned by forgetting the Lord and falling into idolatry. The Lord judged them by subjecting them to cushion Rishathiam for eight years. Israel cried out to the Lord who sent Othniel to deliver them. After that, the land rested for 40 years. Um, and, and what we're doing, the rest of the story is going to get really interesting. Nobody knows Othniel. By the way, before two months ago, <laughs> how many of you knew Othniel's name? How many of you would have just said, oh, I know that guy. Yeah. Who knows Othniel? Unfortunately, how many of you knew Samson and that story? <laughs> All of us. He's the worst judge. He's kind of the bottom of the barrel. By the, by the time you get there, you're, you're working with a guy who you can hardly say anything good about, except at the end of his life, the Lord filled him, and he filled him with a spirit, and he killed a bunch of Philistines. But Othniel, both in chapter 1 and here in chapter 3, Othniel is raised up as this paradigm. It, it's almost, uh, it, Lawson Younger says, like nothing distracts the reader from the clear message of intervention through the, the deliverer that Yahweh raises up. It's kind of, here's the pattern, this is how it's supposed to 
work. Now, I have to keep going back to kind of remind you what the historical context and the setup is for this whole section. Um, the Israelites are now in the promised land. Joshua has led them in. They have conquered and they have controlled the major cities in the land. And they've been sent out and each tribe is supposed to go and further control the area of their inheritance. And that's what they're not doing very well. They're not controlling it. They're not driving out. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that next week. They're not driving out um, the inhabitants of the land who are going to be a snare to them. And God says, if you don't drive them out, they're going to be a snare and you'll fall into the idolatry that is um, common among all of those people. Um, So let me start with Moses' warning. At the end of Moses' life, Moses doesn't lead them into the promised land. He gets them to the edge of the promised land in the land of Moab. And at the edge of the promised land, Moses preaches four sermons that we know as the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is four sermons by Moses before they enter the land. Here's one of the things Moses says there. Fear the Lord your God. Remember, this is the generation that's getting ready to go in. Fear the Lord your God. Serve him only and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you, and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Don't follow other gods because God is jealous. God God is the only justifiably self-centered person in the universe. (laughs) He's the, all of us are self-centered. We're just not justifiably self-centered. I mean, I, I don't really think this anymore, but a lot of us struggle with, you know, if you knew me, you know, your life would be better. Uh, but God legitimately can say that. If you know me and follow me, your life will be better. And if you don't follow me, your life is going to be bad, and, and God is going to discipline them, and, and he eventually... By the way, God's patience, I'm just sowing some seeds here. God's patience is huge because he waits 800 years before he drives them out of the land. 800 years of patience. Um, Mary Evans says this, It's not always clear whether this action should be seen primarily as punishment or as a means of teaching the Israelites a lesson, that is, in order to bring them to their senses. It serves both of these purposes. It is punishment, and that punishment is designed to teach you a lesson. But it's evident that their behavior is both unacceptable to God and damaging to themselves. When you don't follow God, God says, I deserve your full allegiance. And, and that's just that's the fact of the matter. But also, if you go your own way, you're going to find yourself in, in difficult situations because you don't really make the choices that lead to the life that God wants you to have. Joshua warns them as well. Moses, at the end of his life, he dies before they enter to conquer the land. But Joshua gives them a warning, and he puts them on the hook for this. In Joshua 24, right at the end of the book of Joshua, right before this judge's account, Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen for yourself to serve Yahweh. And they said, We are witnesses. We're in. He said, remove the foreign gods that are in your midst and incline your heart to Yahweh, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, we will serve Yahweh, our God, and we will listen to his voice. They said, count us in. We're getting ready to go into the land. We're with you. We have conquered. Now we're going to go control it, and we're going to continue to worship Yahweh. So Joshua made a covenant with the people on that day, and he established for them a a statute and a judgment at Shechem. He's got them at this place where the uh, Ark of the Covenant is. 
Then Joshua wrote these words in a scroll of the law of God, and he took a large stone and set it up there under a large tree, which is at the shrine of Yahweh. And Joshua said to the people, look, this stone will be a witness against you, for it it has heard all the words of Yahweh uh, that he spoke with us. It will be a witness against you so that you do do not deny your God. Then Joshua sent the people away to their inheritance. Joshua has led them in. They've controlled the land with the major strategic areas. And they said, we're in, we're going to go control the Lord. We're going to drive the people, control the land. We're going to drive the people out and we will continue to follow Yahweh. But the book of Judges is they don't again and again and again. And so as we move into this first paradigmatic story, you're going to see that Israel's um, idolatrous rebellion um, meets the Lord's righteous wrath. There's a lesson right there from the beginning for us. God will discipline his people when they don't worship him exclusively. Sometimes that is just the natural consequences of your sin. Sometimes God actively engages and says, I need to discipline you and I need to give you the consequences and push those consequences on you. So let's see what what happens. The, The passage, the Mad Lib begins this way. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. What's the evil that they did? And by the way, this evil is it's a destructive evil. They, they, they were destroying the land. They were destroying their lives. They did this destructive evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God. Once they forgot him, they served the Baals and the Asherahs. Again, this serving the Baals and the Asherahs is going to show up again and again and again. And, and the Canaanite religion with the Baals and the Asherahs was very perverse. I had some handouts out there last week. I took them out, up. Uh, they, it, the perversity of worshiping Baal and Asherah at the temple with these temple prostitutes and, and the rituals that would have taken place is absolutely disgusting. And they bought into that. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathayim, king of Aram Naharayim, whom the Israelites served for eight years. Do you notice they served the Baals and now they have to serve this king? It's almost as if God says, I'm going to give you what you want. You want to serve these, these guys? Then you have to serve their leader. And this guy's not a nice guy. <laughs> um, but notice the connection. They forgot the Lord their God, and that led them to the idolatry. They didn't prioritize God. Bob Chisholm says this, To forget the Lord involves neglect of his covenant demands, ingratitude for his blessings, and a self-sufficient attitude. This, in turn, opens the door to idolatry. Again, Lawson Younger's article on modern idolatry is something that you should read unless you just are at church to feel good about yourself. Because modern idolatry is exactly um, what this book is all about. It's forgetting the Lord and letting the culture seep in and shape your values. Your values about wealth and um, sexuality your values uh, about um, what you prioritize in your life and what becomes most important. Um, It's putting self at the center. 
so that your entire life becomes this um, process of self-actualization. And, and if, if you're aware of anything in the world, you're kind of like, well, what's wrong with that? That's, isn't that what we're supposed to do? Find a job that fulfills us? Find a mate that fulfills us? Find a church that makes us happy? Isn't that what it's all about? Um, no, it's not all about that. It's all about prioritizing the Lord and what he would like for us. And God will judge, but God still delivers them. Um, Del Ralph Davis says this, Yet even here in Yahweh's anger is hope for Israel, for his anger shows that he will not allow Israel to serve Baal unmolested. Yahweh's wrath is the heat of his jealous love by which he refuses to let go of his people. He refuses to allow his people to remain comfortable in sin. Um, unfortunately, in modern idolatry, we found ways to keep ourselves comfortable even in the midst of our idolatry. God has to work really hard to break us of the comfort we have of just the normal sequence of our life and everything kind of flowing, not having to worry about anything financially or socially or medically. God has ways to kind of rattle that up, doesn't he? And just say, you can't keep living this way. It's going to get worse, and it's going to get worse, and it's going to get worse. And, and how God gets their attention is with this ruler whose name is Cushan Rishathayim. Okay? That's not his name. Okay? It's just not his name. Um, we're going to have a little fun with this. I'm going to do a little quiz um, to give you an example and some, some examples of... Uh, of, of what's going on with this guy's name, Cushan Rishathayim. Um, kind of not one of the people, you know, in Bible trivia that you usually come up with. But let me give, give you a quiz. I'm going to try to catch all the generations and all the perspectives here, okay? Who knows who Calvin Broadus is? Anyone know Calvin Broadus? Anybody know that name? Yeah. Who is it? Snoop Dogg. Calvin Broadus' name is Snoop Dogg. Believe it or not, his mother did not name him Snoop Dogg. Okay? A little bit more, Phil, you're done answering, because I know you'll get most of these. Um, Paul David Hewson. Paul Hewson. Anyone know? I know one close to my heart. Bono. Bono is Paul David Hewson. Um, I'm on a theme here, so maybe you'll get with... Um, David Evans. David Evans. Edge. His mom did not name him Edge. You know, oh, look at the pretty little boy. Oh, Edge. Let's call him Edge. Um, another one for younger generation, Curtis Jackson. Anybody know who Curtis Jackson is? Who is it? 50 Cent. Okay. He's not 50 Cent. It's F-I-D-D-Y, 50 Cent. His mom did not name him 50 Cent. All right. See if I can broaden the scope of who I'm talking to here. Um, Harold Jenkins. You want to know who Harold Jenkins is? Anybody? I'll even... Conway Twitty. Harold Jenkins is Conway Twitty. He didn't want to be Harold Jenkins, didn't think it was memorable. Literally, he looked at a map, he saw Conway, Arkansas, Twitty, Texas, and became Conway Twitty. Now, a lot of people who know who Fitty Sin is are going, who is Conway Twitty? couple more. 
you'll date yourself. Richard Starkey. Anyone know Richard Starkey? Ringo Starr. Let's, let's get out of music. Um, Archibald Leach. Cary Grant. Here's another one. You'll, you'll even have some gender confusion here. Um, Marion Morrison. John Wayne. Every, who was waiting for John Wayne? Okay. <laughs> this guy is Cushion Rishathayim. His mother did not name him Cushion Rishathayim because what it means is a Cushite guy who's doubly wicked. Okay. His, his name is kind of dark double wickedness. The guy who's oppressing them is dark double wickedness. He's kind of the, um, the paradigmatic oppressor. And his name, dark double wickedness, is because he comes from Aram Naharayim, which means something like um, the, the land of the double rivers of Aram. It's probably either the Tigris and the Euphrates or the Euphrates and this other river called the Harem. But he's from up north. He's from far north from the area of Babylon, and when you put it together, double wicked dude from up north, from probably the most powerful country. So you start off, the first oppression is is this guy from um, a very powerful area up by the Tigris and the Euphrates River, and he got to the point where people just called him Fitty Wicked. I mean, that's what he was. (laughs) Just really wicked guy from a big area, and he's the one who is oppressing them. And, and it doesn't get any bigger than this. Everybody else is a little bit more localized. But God sends him. I love how Dale Ralph Davis says it. No one wears the political pants of history unless Yahweh issues them to him. God says, okay, I'm going to put you in charge. You're going to get to wear the political pants of oppression for these guys. Um, again, uh, Robert Chisholm, the king's cruelty is suggested by his name, which by popular etymology could be taken as Cushion the Doubly Wicked. Double dark wickedness is kind of what it is. The impact of Cushion Rathiam's name and its etymology echoes in this brief, in this brief narrative. Cushion Rathiam occurs twice in 3.8 and twice in 3.10. Othniel 2 occurs only twice in the cameo, but one notices that Yahweh occurs seven times in just five verses. So that this narrative turns out to be primarily not about Othniel, not even about Cush and Rathathiam, but about Yahweh himself. Um, Othniel's a cameo. Cush and Rathiam is kind of a, a, a model. He's a foil. He's real, but he's a foil. By the way, we don't really even know who he is. And it's about Yahweh himself. Indeed, in no other judge narrative is the role of God so clearly depicted. No other story does Yahweh permeate as fully as he does this one. Get a few other characters, but Yahweh is there eight times because this is about Yahweh's anger, Yahweh's control of these foreign powers, Yahweh's grace to send a deliverer, Yahweh's jealousy. It's all about Yahweh. So they have forgotten the Lord. They're, they're, They're going about their life and the culture's dominating them. The culture that says, kind of here's how you make it in your day-to-day living you you got to make sure the fertility is is happening and 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 we've got to coax Baal and Astaroth to produce the fertility for us and and that just bled in because they forgot the Lord they didn't prioritize him and God says okay I've had enough 
Oppression's going to come. But Israel does cry out to the Lord. And, and it's only because God is gracious. And I'll make this point again and again. They're not repenting. They're just um, oppressed. They're just suffering. One of the questions that I have talked with a couple people about and am trying to figure out is, what does repentance really look like for us as a community in the 21st century? What, what does repentance look like for us? And the, the first part of it is we have to understand our own idolatry. We have to understand where we have let the culture seep in. Because we haven't driven the culture out, the culture has stepped in. But, but God will still graciously save his people. Even when we cry out to him, they don't repent. They just cry out, and God loves us so much that even when we're suffering, he's going to save them. But when they cried out to the Lord, again, this crying out is not full repentance. Um, when they cried out to the Lord, God raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. Again, he, he's a model, and, and he, we're introduced to him in chapter 1 with a strong marriage and a fidelity to the Lord. Um, his, his wife is trusting, and his wife is, is furthering the cause of the Lord in chapter 1. None of that's going to happen for any of the other judges. Kenway says, thus the grace of God in delivering his people from bondage is one of the most important teachings of this book. And I can't emphasize enough, this is God's grace, even though they are not fully repentant and they keep doing the same thing over and over again. But <laughs> the discipline is going to get harsher and harsher and harsher until finally, after enough time, God's going to say, you have to leave the land. He's going to kick them out of the land. Lawson Younger says, Yahweh intervenes on Israel's behalf solely on the basis of his compassion for the Israelites in the midst of their distress, not on the basis of their repentance. Gosh, I hope you're not settling in and going, oh, I don't have to repent. I don't have to repent. I'll just cry out when things get bad, and God will graciously deliver me. Um, when that happens, God will eventually like he does in Judges chapter 10, we'll get there. Say, I'm not delivering you anymore. In this view that they're not really repenting, the people persisted in idolatry rather than oscillating back and forth between faithfulness and idolatry. God not, did not respond to a repentant people, but rather mercifully intervened to relieve the suffering of his disobedient people. Folks, I am trying to... You can always turn back to him. And he's compassionate and he listens. God delivers on the basis of his own character rather than, according, rather than according to the people's worthiness. Folks, none of us are worthy of his deliverance. Because there's not anyone in this room, including the person who's up on the stage, who understands the depth of my own idolatry and how I've let the world seep in. And I'm sitting with this stuff all the time. Um... But God is going to deliver Israel's evil oppressor and the Lord's overpowering strength. God sends the oppression. He sends the discipline. He, he causes the trouble, but he then delivers them out of that because God wants us to see, I'm in control and I'm gracious. Please turn back to me. 
God empowers these willing leaders. And Othniel, he's a willing leader. He's, he's empowered. The, the Spirit of the Lord came on him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rathiam, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. The Lord comes upon him. A little bit different than um, our um, New Testament experience. One of the things that really changes in the New Testament is with the, the victory of Christ at the cross... Um, in his victorious ascension, he distributes and he gives the Holy Spirit to us. Um, Luke 3.16 is, is the primary thing. He's going to give us the Holy Spirit. And, and we now have the, the Holy Spirit indwelling in us all the time. In the Old Testament, it wasn't that way. The Spirit came upon them and empowers them. And, and as you're going to see as we work through this, the Spirit's going to come upon them. Um, and they're not deserving of it. Um, Samson's going to have the Spirit come upon him so that God can use him and God will empower him, but it certainly doesn't change his life. God disciplined his sinful people, but when they cried out for help, he rescued them by raising up effective leaders, empowering one with his Spirit, and next week rewarding another one with courageous faith and providentially using the exploits of an unlikely foreigner. Um, Both of these first two weeks, the, the deliverer is not an Israelite. Mary Evans says, in Judges, the Spirit of the Lord came upon, seems to refer to an infusion of energy, improving military prowess, rather than an increase in spirituality. It's not increasing their spirituality, it's coming upon them so that God can deliver them, because there's not really much spirituality going on, except for Joshua, Othniel, and as we'll see when we finish Judges, and Ruth, who lived during this period of time. When people abandon Yahweh in favor of any other allegiance, they absolve him of any obligation to them. When people abandon Yahweh in favor of any other allegiance, they absolve him of any other obligation to them. In fact, they render him their enemy and may expect his judgment. On the other hand, when an individual who's been called by God into his service, like Othniel, challenges the forces of evil and darkness in God's power, the host of heaven and earth are dethroned. You'll just submit to the Lord. God will do great things with you. God severely disciplined his idolatrous people, then compassionately confronted them, challenging them to demonstrate their loyalty to him. That's what he's doing. He's, he's saying, I'm going to discipline you, then I'm going to deliver you. Will you now be loyal? And they're going to say, no. Because <laughs> pretty quickly, the very next verses. They're going to turn away. What do we learn from this whole big passage? There's a bunch we can learn here. Though God may discipline us with the humiliating consequences of our sin, serving pity Rathiam, uh, serving Mr. Double Wicked, the humiliating consequences of our sin, subjugation to others. You want to serve your own way? Well, you can, have, you can serve your own way, and it's going to be destructive, and it's going to oppress you. Though God may discipline us with the humiliating consequences of our sin, he's willing to deliver us by demonstrating his power and showing his right to our loyalty and worship. It's by his his compassion that he says, I will discipline you and I will deliver you so that in the whole process, you'll say, I'm going to turn back to you and be faithful. I will be loyal to you. Lots of applications we can get here, but I want to end with some 
some, some next steps that, is, as I've said, I'm trying to be a little more encouraging to us here. There's a truth, there's a warning, and there's a challenge. The truth is this. God is faithful to discipline us. God is faithful. He said he's going to discipline us. He will. You can't just go, oh, maybe I'm skating this time. God will discipline you. God is faithful to discipline us, and he's compassionate to deliver us. All of that in order to teach us to worship him to prioritize him, to get him back in the center of the focus so that we will remember him. That's what God is doing in our lives. There's a warning here. God will allow us to experience the humiliating consequences of our sin. God will allow us to experience that. And it just gets worse as you keep doing it. So the challenge God graciously delivers when we cry out to him. And, and again, I've got to work on this and figure this out and how to land it for me and how to land it for us. What does it look like to go beyond just crying out and just saying, God, can we just have some peace? Can we just have some health? Can the numbers just go down? Can we get the right person leading us? Rather than just crying out, what does it mean to actually turn and repent and change our allegiance from the values of the world to the values of God. What does it mean to make that turn? Both individually, daily, uh, as kind of a major life shift. What does it mean to make that turn, change your allegiance? What does it mean for us as a church to do that corporately? Because we can't afford to continue in the cycle that we're in. And and perhaps it's too late for the world. Maybe God's judgment is just coming. But you know what? We can be Othniels. We can be Ruths, who in the time when the judges reigned were faithful to the Lord. How are we going to live? Are we going to live kind of the standard person of God, cycle of idolatry, oppression, deliverance, idolatry, oppression, deliverance, until finally you get to a place in your life where God says, I'm not delivering you anymore. Judges 10, read it. Or will we be exceptional people who love the Lord with all of our heart? And we're willing to not look like the culture around us. Because we have a priority focus on our faithfulness to Yahweh. And if you're wondering, well, gosh, this sounds scary. Well, you know what? God delivered us from the oppression, the biggest oppression we could ever face, the oppression of our sin. He delivered us from that by sending Jesus Christ. Is that not enough to turn your heart to worship him? Would you stand as we pray? Maybe this is a part of corporately what it means to start turning to the Lord. Join me as I'm praying. Father, I I ask that you would um, convict us and capture our hearts. May we see the futility of our ways and return to faithfulness to you. 
Lord, may we embrace your gracious provision and worship you because you are worthy. I ask that in Christ's name. Amen.